Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The pandemic played havoc with global supply chains and made governments keen to boost domestic manufacturing to better protect their economies against shortages. New research suggests, though, that this may be precisely the wrong approach. And one of America's greatest bassists, composers, and band leaders was born 100 years ago today in Arizona. Our correspondent reflects on the legacy of the fiery, often intemperate, but always brilliant Charles Mingus. But first... It sounds like a policy from a political farce. But Britain's conservative government is pressing ahead with a controversial new way of dealing with refugees. Under this partnership, those who travel to the UK by illegal and dangerous routes, including by small boats across the Channel, may be relocated to Rwanda, where they will have their asylum claims considered. The plan, set out by the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, is a straightforward one. Try to enter the country illegally, and you could be flown 6,500 kilometers to Rwanda, no matter where you've come from. Opposition has come from all sides, predictably from the leader of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer. You know, they're unworkable, they're extortionate, they're going to cost taxpayers billions of pounds. I think it's a desperate announcement. The Archbishop of Canterbury said the policy did not stand the judgment of God. There have even been critics within the Conservative Party itself, among them, former Prime Minister Theresa May. I do not support the removal to Rwanda policy on the grounds of legality, practicality and efficacy. There's been a lot of focus on reasons why the plan won't work. But the bigger concern might be the impact if it does in Britain, Rwanda and beyond. It's a really big step. Joel Budd is The Economist's social policy editor. Britain has for many years tried to be unwelcoming to asylum seekers. It has cut their per-week subsidies. It has banned them from working for very long periods of time. It's forced them to wait months and months and months before their claims are heard. But this is something entirely new. And Joel, can you flesh it out a bit more? When could this go into effect and, and what does the plan do? It only goes into effect once the government has passed a kind of enabling law in Parliament, and that's being argued over at the moment. But I imagine that will pass within a couple of months. In theory, it could start sending people to Rwanda pretty quickly. I mean, people in Downing Street have suggested that they could start doing so within a few weeks. I think that's fairly unlikely because there will be legal challenges. And what's the rationale behind it? Why are they doing this? There's a kind of ostensible rationale. And then I think there's a more 
sort of realistic rationale. The ostensible rationale is that asylum seekers trying to get to Britain in little inflatable dinghies with the help of people smugglers is a very, very dangerous way of going about things. It's really undesirable. It puts money into the hands of criminals. People drown and so forth. And we just can't have such a kind of hazardous criminal system operating. I think, though, a more kind of realistic reading of it is that it's being done in order to deter people from trying to make the journey at all. And have other countries tried approaches like this? Yes, they have. I mean, as soon as COVID struck, America started to simply sort of push people back over its southern border under guidance from the Centers for Disease Control, which which argued that they were a COVID risk. And for the last few years, the European Union has kind of relocated people, mostly Syrians, who crossed from Turkey into Greece has sort of sent them back to Turkey. And so as a result, Turkey now has an enormous population of Syrian asylum seekers. Denmark did a deal with Rwanda last year, but it's pretty theoretical. So this would be a a new thing because it would send people kind of, regardless of where they come from, it will send people, you know, sort of 6,500 kilometers away. I'm curious, why is Britain and why did Denmark choose Rwanda and what does Rwanda get out of it? Well, Rwanda gets money out of it. They also get a bit of respect and immunity from criticism. It's an autocracy, but it's a funny it's a funny kind of autocracy. It's not a sort of thuggish regime. The police in Rwanda do not go around kind of beating people up. Instead, it's a country where Ordinary people are just sort of too scared, too alarmed to criticize the government. It, the government exercises a kind of, a sort of a kind of control over their over their minds, really. Asking somebody in Rwanda about politics, the look of terror that comes across their faces is, is quite something. So this deal means, in effect, that Britain has to stop asking whether Rwanda is, you know, sticking to kind of human rights obligations. And this policy has come in for a lot of criticism, though, hasn't it? Yes, it's coming for criticism, but the criticisms are, I think, a bit odd. One very common criticism is that it, it will be super expensive to do this. Another one is that it just won't work. Lawyers will attack it. It's going to be very hard to send lots and lots of people to Rwanda just sort of practically. And so as a result, it's not, it's not really going to be very much of a, of a deterrent. I think those criticisms are not really quite the right ones. Having an expensive asylum system is sort of maybe desirable. You know, it's, not, it's not clear that asylum systems ought, ought, ought to be cheap. And if not many people are sent to Rwanda, well, then sort of so what? I think a much more worrying possibility is that, in fact, it is effective. Effective in that it works as a deterrent? Yes, definitely. I mean, Denmark has already said that it's going back into talks with Rwanda to send asylum seekers who reach Denmark. And I think, yes, if Britain does manage to send lots of asylum seekers, you know, in other words, kind of thousands per year, people will get the message, I think, and stop trying to come to Britain. And once it becomes clear that that has happened, I think you would indeed see a cascading effect of other countries deciding that they want to do sort of pretty much the same thing. Joel, what's the risk if other rich countries start doing this? I think the risk is that there just becomes a sort of 
kind of copycat situation where rich countries simply buy their way out of having to hear asylum claims at all. And what that would lead us to is a world where the countries that are most able to accommodate asylum seekers are kind of end up doing by far the least. Now, rich countries already host fewer refugees than poor countries in in many cases. The huge populations of refugees are in countries like Turkey, Kenya, you know, Bangladesh with its Rohingyas and so on. But if other rich countries start to follow Britain, then we would just end up with a sort of extreme version of that where sort of all refugees are in the countries that can't afford to ship them somewhere else. It's not easy to balance, you know, controlling the borders toward compassion with people who need a place for safety. Setting aside this policy for a minute, do you think that Johnson's government is is getting it wrong more broadly? It is just enormously difficult. I think the British government needs to be clear and honest about what it really wants to achieve. If it wants to prevent deaths in the channel, prevent chaos in the channel, there are actually quite easy ways of doing that. The easy way is simply to allow asylum seekers in northern France to apply for asylum in in the UK. So Britain would kind of move its border onto French territory. The French are up for this, so they have said. And so people would be allowed to try to claim asylum in Britain from northern France. And that would mean that essentially nobody, I would think, would you know, try to cross the channel in a dinghy ever again. Or Britain could issue some kind of, you know, humanitarian visa, you know, essentially, you know, kind of we give you permission to come to Britain in order to claim asylum. And then people would just get on ferries, which is which is much cheaper and much, and much safer than trying to get in a dinghy. All right, Joel, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Over the quarter century prior to the pandemic, manufacturing was transformed by the emergence of complex global supply chains. Firms have used them to efficiently produce all sorts of goods at low cost and enormous scale. Common wisdom might suggest that COVID-19 has exposed their vulnerabilities. The pandemic created shortages of everything from vehicles to electronic goods to garden furniture. Some governments have suggested pulling back from globalization, instead boosting domestic manufacturing to protect their economies. This is called reshoring. But the International Monetary Fund has come up with an alternative interpretation of the resilience of those supply chains and a different prescription for what should happen next. Reshoring production is not actually the way to prevent damage from supply shocks. And actually, the conclusion of the IMS research is that 
a policy of reshoring could in fact leave economies more vulnerable to such shocks. Ryan Avent is a senior editor at The Economist and writes the Free Exchange column. The pandemic really did a number on global supply chains. It put them through the ringer. You had this enormous blow to economies that provided a huge shock to demand, which tumbled in the spring of 2020 and then bounced back with a vengeance. The consequence has been an enormous surge in shipping times and delays. Costs have risen. There have been shortages of critical components like computer chips and other inputs to electronics. It's really encouraged governments to think more about how they can encourage domestic productions, but... The work that the IMF has just published suggests that that may, in fact, leave them more vulnerable to troubles like this in the future. And why is that? What does the IMF think is the right thing to do? Well, the IMF thinks that actually what you want to aim for is diversification of your supply chains, which means importing critical components from a broader array of countries, and also that you're making your supply chains more flexible. So if that certain components aren't available, you can easily switch to substitutes. So... The way the IMF makes the case for diversification is in part by looking at how concentrated production is across the global economy as a whole. If you're looking at a given product produced by different countries, the concentration of that production or the average market share that a country has in in production of that product is about 31%. But if you look at specific individual economies and their production strategies, they tend to draw about 70 to 80% of the components they use in production from the home economy, from their domestic economy. And so what that means is that if you increase the share of critical inputs that you're taking from the domestic economy, you're making your supply chains less diversified. And this ends up being hugely important, the IMF estimates. It builds a model which it uses to kind of assess different trade shocks. And so if it hits this model with a massive trade shock, Like if we say that China gets a quarter of its production knocked out, the average economy in that case can expect to see GDP fall by a full percentage point. In a world where trades become much more diversified, the cost of that kind of shock is halved, which is just an enormous improvement in the resilience of the global economy. I want to talk about resilience and diversification in a bit. What do we know about the economic impact of the pandemic broadly? Trade fell by about 12% in the second quarter of 2020 relative to late 2019. That's a similar drop in trade to what happened during the global financial crisis, but it happened much more quickly. But then it also rebounded far more quickly than has typically been the case in other recessions. And so you just had this extreme volatility in global trade, and that shows up in this model that the IMF has developed. If they plug in the fall in spending that was observed, the effects that it predicts for trade are not what we actually saw. And so it's clear that this is not just your sort of garden variety recession. It was a very strange period that was not just about economic weakness, but also about things like lockdowns that affected trade in really strange ways. What are some of those strange ways? I mean, how did did reality differ from, from what the IMS model predicted? Part of what we observed was strangeness within economies themselves. And so you saw a big shift in spending away from services and toward goods. People are spending much more on home electronics, either to amuse themselves or so they were able to work from home. And then also because domestic economies couldn't produce all the things they normally produced, some places had to import goods from elsewhere. So the pandemic distorted domestic economies. Presumably, there was also an effect on on countries' trading partners and on trade more broadly, right? There definitely was, yes. What the IMF shows is that through the first half of 2020, about 60% of the decline 
in a country's imports could be explained by lockdowns and its trading partners. But importantly, these effects got smaller over time. And that's partly because there was a lot of telework that developed. And so places which were able to do more uh, remote work saw smaller effects on trade from lockdowns. But also the IMF finds that there's this improvement over time in the effect of a given lockdown on trade. And they chalk this up to the adaptability of supply chains, learning to get around mobility restrictions better, but also shifts in production. And so places that left lockdowns earlier see this increase in market share, which is a sign that firms are moving production around to places that are dealing with the virus better. And this really reflects well, I think, on supply chains as a way of handling production and trade. Now, Ryan, you and I are both in the United States, and it may feel to us like the pandemic is in some sense over, but it's not. The world is still in the middle of it. China, a huge manufacturing center, is imposing new lockdowns. Russia has invaded Ukraine, which has prompted fears of supply chain shortages in grains and fertilizer. How do these sorts of factors affect the picture you're painting? We are absolutely right. And one of the limitations of this IMF research is that the data is not yet available to take the analysis forward through the end of 2021 and into early 2022. And obviously, toward the end of last year, we saw intense supply chain stresses, which have only continued. But based on this model that the IMF has developed, they think that they're nonetheless able to say something clear about the lessons of the pandemic that I think applies, even though we haven't yet gotten the full picture toward the sort of latter stages of the pandemic. So Ryan, I want to end where we began with diversification. What does that look like in practice and how can countries best encourage diversification of their their supply chains and economies? The conventional wisdom has been that the past few years were not good for supply chain trade and governments are keen to do a lot of reshoring of production. I think this IMF work really ought to make us stand back and question those assumptions and really think hard about how we can encourage diversification The question is how best to do that. The IMF recommends that governments work to reduce barriers to trade. And it also reckons that investments in infrastructure, particularly in places like Sub-Saharan Africa and Central America, could really be useful in terms of providing more opportunities for firms to uh, diversify their supply chains. But for me, the big question is whether that's going to be enough. There has been a change in mindset. There's been this new awareness of geopolitical risk. And I suppose I worry that firms and governments will be a little bit unwilling to develop trust in the global economy once again and make that effort to really diversify and rely more on trade and not less. All right, Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure. Friday the 22nd of April is the centenary of one of the undeniable greats of jazz, who is Charles Mingus. Sebastian Scottney writes about music for The Economist. Composer, bassist, a band leader, and a really giant figure. If you ever feel that your energy is sapping, you put on a track like Boogie Stop Shuffle. This is a larger-than-life figure making music a big character. The curious thing about him is that he was mixed race, I mean, a complete melting pot of different cultures. In white circles, he was on the wrong side of it. But when he, as a child, was living in the community in Watts, in the suburbs of Los Angeles, 
he was being chased around and bullied by black gangs of kids his age. There's a feeling of vulnerability. There is always a spirit of defiance and dissent that runs through his music that comes from that. You know, his father was not an easy character. He himself has been described by one biographer as a violent, self-obsessed asshole who may have been a genius. I don't put the genius in question. There's an instant of a band director just saying, oh, well, uh, black people can't read music. And that kind of stuck with him. He was astonishingly talented, gifted and hardworking. And those slights and those, those knocks along the way clearly left a mark. There's a real sassiness about the uh, Haitian fight song from the album The Clown from 1957. This is the language of defiance. It's the sort of, do I care? This is me. This is who I am. In jazz, there is always this combination of precision and accuracy to a kind of uproarious, riotous, exuberance, self-expression, maybe chaos, dissonance, and that kind of thing. And throughout his career as a band leader, there's a very clear sense of maybe wanting both. If you listen to a tune like Goodbye Pork Pie Hat, then you have that very, very structured opening, a very soulful tune being declared. But then it gives way to something much more riotous and free, and he wanted both of those in his music. There's a whole debate around in the superhero cartoon world as to whether the Superman and the Batman themes that were around in the 70s were inspired by that kind of restless energy of I better get it in your soul and a boogie stop shuffle. But that, that kind of urgency in music, that desire to really just express pure energy left its mark on other composers. There's an astonishing legacy there. He was the first person of colour to have his entire catalogue of music into the uh, Library of Congress in Washington. He's definitely a complex personality. That's longtime associate saxophonist Charles McPherson, who's now 82. He first worked with Mingus when he was in his early 20s. He was able to compose from all of the emotional menu that human beings had. A great composer should be able to create music dealing with all of the emotions of what being human is. The legacy of Charles Mingus at 100 has a lot to do with how he is being taught in conservatoires where people see him as an absolutely indispensable and huge and towering figure that he stands for individuality, that he stands for protest. And I'm also fascinated by one use of him in the UK, which is a group which is called the Blues and Roots Ensemble. They take Mingus's ethos, that kind of workshop, unfinished, let's see if we can get it better, into primary schools as a way to give marginalised and underprivileged children a voice. And I think that perhaps stands as a really good example of how a figure like this can inspire in the very long term. 
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors this week are Marguerite Howell, Chris Impey, and Kim Gittleson. Our sound engineer is Will Rowe with additional help from Saul Rivers. Our senior producers are Sam Westron, Jack Gill, and John Joe Devlin. Our U.S. audio correspondent is Stevie Hertz. Our producers are William Warren, Rory Galloway, and Alizé Jean-Baptiste with extra production help this week from Kevin Caners. We'll all see you back here on Monday. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit Moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity.